You may be seated. God bless you in the house of God. Open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 23. How many are happy about the extra sleep? How many didn't get any extra sleep? You just stayed up longer. I've been there. But I got me some extra sleep. I'm happy. Somebody say, woe to you. Believe it or not, I'm happy, but I got to preach to you one of the toughest, roughest messages of Jesus today. So look at your neighbor and say, buckle up. I was talking to my friend. This is a cool statement I'm about ready to say. I was talking to my friend who was getting his PhD in New Testament studies. That's a cool statement, isn't it? How many friends do you have with a PhD in New Testament studies? So I was talking to my friend who is getting that PhD in New Testament studies, and he is doing it on the book of Matthew in a particular section. He is going to write somewhere between two to 300 pages on probably only about 10 verses. This is how they become experts. And one of the things that he dropped in my spirit as I was talking to him is that he said, one of the things that I've learned about Matthew that is different from all the other gospels and his intensive studies is that Matthew rebukes, or Jesus is rebuking in Matthew, the Jewish people more than any other book. And if you've been tracking with us, we're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Matthew, you've probably noticed that. And now we're going to get to the crescendo. Jesus is going to full on let them have it now. Now what we're going to see in this is not Jesus wishing to damn them because he does not love them. What we're going to see in Jesus is a father that has had enough. And actually at the end, he's going to refer to himself as a mother. So you could actually say to keep in the context, it's like a mother that is fed up and has had enough. What it's going to provide for us is a few things, because I'm going to read it in its entirety. The entire rebuke is 39 verses, so it's going to be a little bit today of reading, but you've got to track with me here. I want to get you a few big picture things. Leave the screen up for me, please. I want Before we even get to the scriptures, I want them to see this. A couple of things you have to notice is that, number one, When you hear Jesus rebuking religious people, and if you get into your mind, I'm not a religious person, Jesus wouldn't rebuke me. No, Jesus is more fed up with you than he is with a religious person, because at least a religious person has tried. You're not even trying. So a lot of times people have said, well, Jesus' strongest rebukes were were for the the religious people and the pagans. He, He was nicer to them, or the woman with the issue of blood. No, 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 no. My friends, read books of the Bible like like the chapters of the prophets. No, he's basically saying your entire civilization's going to hell. You have to understand that. So it's not like he's cool with the Romans and he's just picking on his own people. No, he's basically saying all of the Roman Empire is going to hell and I'm still working with my kids right here, but I'm upset with them. So if you were ever to get this in your mind, like, well, I'm not religious, he's not mad with me, you're already going to hell. You're already outside the picture The very fact that he's talking to what we would call church folk is actually a good thing because they were in the church able to hear this kind of thing. So in other words, it would have been better for you to have been a a Pharisee than for you to have been a pagan Roman. 
So if you look at this and go, well, he's just telling all of them. No, no, no. Uh, Most of our culture is 10 times worse than these Jewish people ever were. They had at least common sense that you don't kill your own children. They had at least enough common sense. That's called abortion, by the way. They at least had enough common sense to know what a man and a woman was. I mean, I mean, these Jewish people, it was settled. Sodom and Gomorrah deserved it, sexual perversion. So if you're thinking to yourself, I just want to preface this and be very clear in this culture that loves to degrade religious people, loves to put down church folks and hypocrites, and you love to be like Jesus in the rebuke of religious people, if you are a pagan, if you are an adulterer, if you are uh, uh, you know, a homosexual, if you are an Oprah Winfrey, Ellen DeGeneres loving person, you're 10 times worse than the people being rebuked here. Number one, God's not even talking to you. He's totally ignored your culture and has just basically said it's going to hell. Read, read the prophets. Read how God dealt with them. Read the book of Revelation and see all the death and destruction that comes. It's only God's people. So, so number one, this is God cleaning up mess. He even called the temple his house or his father's house that he was a part of. And so this is Jesus cleaning mess. So number one, don't ever get it in your mind that somehow you're better than these people. You're not better than these people. Now, the second thing is, which is, which is very true to the fact here, is religious people can go to hell too. Religious people, listen to me, can go to hell with the abortion doctor, with RuPaul. Are you listening? You can be in this church and go to hell with NBA, the rapper, never broke again. I've been catching up on some of the more popular rappers of these kids' generation. You, you, listen to me, your religious ways of doing things will not save you from the wrath of God unless you have been born again. So there's, so there's two very, very important lessons to get here. Number one, if you are not a person that at least fears God, and at least holds to the moral code of one man, one woman, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not lie. You're way worse than the Pharisees. Let's just, let's just deal with that now. But number two, if, if you're like saying, I'm good. I mean, I don't murder. I don't steal. And, uh, you know, I, I got all those things down. But yet you're still uh, cheating and lying on the side. You're looking at pornography when nobody's watching. You're not a giver of your finances. You only look out for yourself. And, and, and Christianity to you is a means to an end. You use it to get a better life. And that's how you look at God. It's like he's your genie in a bottle. You're receiving this rebuke today. So where are we supposed to be if I don't want to be a pagan on my way to hell that God says, I ain't got time for you. I'll see you at judgment. And if I don't want to be a religious hypocrite that's going to the same hell as Caesar's going to, where are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be with Jesus and the disciples standing right behind Jesus going, you tell them, you tell them. We're supposed to be with Peter. We're supposed to be with John. Put yourself in the story. Where are you supposed to be? You're supposed to be with Mary Magdalene. You got some demons cast out of you. Come on. You, you've, been, you've been set free. You, you ain't tricking no more. You ain't taking that call from your baby daddy anymore. Are you listening? You stand. It gets quiet when I preach like that. You, you act like you guys don't relate to that. Come on. You're standing with Jesus. You're standing with Jesus going, I agree. I agree that the church needs to be fixed. And I agree that my culture that's godless and, and wicked, it's going to hell in a handbasket. I agree with it all, Jesus. 
And then if I agree, what do I do? I examine my heart, I look within, and I see, am I I living out this? And there's going to be a term that's going to be brought up over and over and over again. And this is the term. It's called hypocrite. Everybody say hypocrite. I want you to know the exact meaning of this word in the Greek. It's actually almost identical in the Greek language, like hypocritus, you know, something like that. It's almost identical to how we pronounce it in English. And the problem with us saying the word hypocrite and not understanding the Greek root of it is that we don't understand the term. So let me just give you a quick understanding of this term hypocrite. The word hypocrite, as it is used in this culture at this time, what it simply means is actor, pretender. Somebody say pretender. A hypocrite, listen, is not somebody who has mistakes. That's not what it is. Otherwise, every one of Jesus' disciples is a hypocrite. Has Peter made a mistake? Yeah, Peter's made a mistake. Peter, Peter basically said don't go to the cross and was called Satan. Do you guys remember that part of the story? Have James and John made mistakes? Yes, when a town did not receive Jesus, James and John said, should we call down the fire of God now and burn them all up? Okay, so I mean, people who make mistakes are not equal to hypocrites. This is specifically what a hypocrite is, a pretender, someone that pretends they don't have mistakes, someone that pretends that they're doing one thing, but they're really doing another. Do you guys get that? Because otherwise, you'll fall into this trap. And and it's been so strange to me, but the devil, he is a cunning liar. You'll fall into this trap where instead of trying to live for Jesus, you'll refrain refrain from living for Jesus because you don't want to be considered a hypocrite. No, 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 no. Live for Jesus even if you make mistakes. You may not be sinless, but the more you hang out with Jesus, you will sin less. Do you, do you guys know what I'm talking about? There's something in this culture that makes you feel. Let's, let's just put Kanye out there right now. There's something in this culture that all makes us feel we can't trust whether or not Kanye's saved because if he makes a mistake, then, you know, he's really not saved. But we're not understanding that we've all been baby Christians. We've all started off in our Christianity somewhere and have made mistakes. And so the idea is not like You're a hypocrite if you make a mistake. No, you're a hypocrite when you're pretending that you're not making mistakes and not confessing them and dealing with them. So let me give you an example right here because I'm about ready to read 39 verses. Can I just prep you guys a little bit here? Are you guys bored yet? This is just the introduction. I got to prep you for me to read a lot of the Bible today, okay? If you and I were to go out to eat and my wife and I were enjoying that meal with you and at some point my wife and I got into an argument. And you watch my wife and I get a little bit heated with each other. For you to walk away from that dinner and go like, Pastor is such a hypocrite. You don't know what a hypocrite is then. Because have I ever given you the impression that my wife and I don't argue? No, so I have never pretended. I actually use those arguments as illustrations up here. I have never told you that my wife and I don't have an argument. Now, now let me pause and say this. This doesn't give us an excuse to just sin all the time. So I'm a sinner. I'm going to sin, so get used to it. Now I'm not a hypocrite. Well, that is true. If you're saying I'm a sinner and I'm going to sin all a bunch of times, you are not by definition a hypocrite anymore. What you are now is a sinner. You are a lukewarm person. You're not on fire for Jesus. But, but honestly, if you said to somebody, these are the weaknesses, these are my struggles, if you see these things, pray for me, and let's go back to that time at, at the dinner table with my wife and I. 
Let's say I said, man, I'm sorry, honey. I shouldn't have said that. It's over. I am not a hypocrite. Just because I still believe we shouldn't fight as a married couple or I teach you that you shouldn't fight with your husband or wife as a married couple doesn't mean now I'm a hypocrite because I got into a fight with my spouse. Because I affirm the standard I'm living by, and when I don't live by that standard, I confess it. So, go, so let's go to your job right now. Let's say you're on your job tomorrow. Something goes wrong, and you just curse. You go, oh, F this. Or you just, you, know, you, you, just, you just cuss. You just say a bad word. And now they look at you, and they go, oh, man, you're a hypocrite. You're a Christian. You're not supposed to curse. But let's say after you curse, you go, oh, man, I should have did that. <laughs> man, I am so sorry for doing that. I hang around you guys too much. I'm sorry. I'm talking like you now. Put it back on them, right? <laughs> Let's say you cursed and then you repented. Are you a hypocrite? You are not a hypocrite. You, you have sinned. You admitted your sin to those you sinned against who might have heard you. You have said, forgive me for my sin. Let's go on. That is not a hypocrite. So when Jesus is rebuking them over and over and over again for being hypocrites, that's not what they're doing. See, what they're doing is they're pretending they don't cuss, but then they cuss all the time and never say sorry for it. They're pretending they don't look at pornography, but look at it all the time and don't apologize for it. They're saying that having sex before marriage is wrong, but they're having it all the time and they're not repenting for it. Can I just make it more plain here? They're saying gossip is wrong, but then they're gossiping and not apologizing for it. If you fit into that category today, then you are a hypocrite. But I'm not a hypocrite. But have I gossiped? Yes. Have I sinned? Yes, since being a Christian. But I'm not a hypocrite because the difference is I am not telling you one thing than doing another and not confessing my wrong when I do it. How many of y'all want to be free from hypocrisy? Amen. Let's get to the scriptures. Thank you, sir. Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. If you're ready, somebody say, I'm ready. Thank you. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Right here we learn that Jesus taught us to respect leadership. You should respect your president, but don't do what he does. You see, respect him as your president, but don't do what he does with women. Don't treat women like that, but respect and honor him. Respect and honor policemen, but don't be a part of the problem of uh, uh, police abuse or whatever. You get what I'm saying? So you still respect authority, and if, they're doing, if authority is doing something wrong, don't follow what they're doing wrong. But the idea that I'm just going to be rebellious against everything that I don't like is not biblical. Jesus said, honor your leaders. Pray for them. Pray for them to change. Respect your pastor. Even if I don't do everything right, then don't do what I don't do right. And if I do enough things wrong, I'll find another church, right? Okay? But, but this is Jesus saying, even at this time to this rebuke he's going to give them, he even tells them, listen to them. Be careful to do everything they tell you. Why? Because those Pharisees were breaking down the word every day. That's why I'm telling you, they're better than Pharaoh. They're better than Caesar. They're better than their Machu Picchu, whatever culture you come from. They're better than the Aztecs. They're better than the, the Mayans. They're better than the Romans. They're better than the Greeks. They're better than the Chinese dynasties. Listen to them. He don't even care about Caesar at this point. He don't even care about what Buddha's been talking about, what the Indian gods have. He's saying, don't even pay attention. They're not even on my mind. Listen to these guys. They're right in what they're telling you. But what is the problem? Don't do what they do because they do not practice what they preach. 
Now here's the description. They tie up heavy cumbersome loads and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So they're telling you the right things, but they're not there to help you. Verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide. These are the things they would put on their head that had scriptures in them. And tassels on their garments long. That was to represent the law. They love the place of honor at banquets and most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Do you see the problem they have? It's not the information they're disseminating. It's, it's not here. It's not in their scripture because sometimes other religions go, hey, man, I've rejected Judaism just like Jesus rejected Judaism. Now I'm a, a Muslim. Now I'm a Hindu. No, no, no. Jesus didn't reject Judaism. Jesus was a Jew. What Jesus is doing is saying these Jews, these leaders are not living right. Let's go to verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, you are all brothers, and do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. You are not to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Who's your instructor? The Messiah, thank you. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be what? Exalted. You see the principle there? We go down, God lifts us up. We try to go up, God pushes us down. If you want to be lifted up by God, go down, be humble. Now, there's this important part right here. There's two ways to interpret this. Either Jesus is saying, don't call these people by these titles ever, or just not in a religious sense, that you make them more than what they are. It depends on how you want to read this and where you want to settle with this. But I settle more towards, don't call me father. Don't even call me professor or teacher. Don't call me by any of my titles, pastor, apostle, etc. Just call me Joe. Because if you could call him Jesus, you can call me Joe. And if you talk to me with respect, then you'll get the teacher. You talk to me with respect, you'll get the pastor. You'll get all of that. But I am weary of titles before my name because of this passage right here. Now, if you, if you say, you know what, it is okay to do it as long as they're good leaders, then you have to be okay with the Catholics calling people father. Because Catholics will rock you with this scripture in 30 seconds. If you say, call no one father. See, Father Tom, you're so wrong. We ain't supposed to call you father. The Bible says that. And then he'll go, um, uh, excuse me, when you go to your college class, what do you call the person who teaches there? Professor, you ain't supposed to call him that either. You see, they'll twist it right on you. So if you are more lenient in this passage and you're okay with the title professor, instructor, teacher as a title and, and want to call me pastor and those are the kinds of things you're comfortable with, then you have to be comfortable with someone being called father because that's what they called their teachers back then as well. This is why I am not comfortable with titles. I don't rebuke you for it because I don't want you to feel odd when you're talking to me. Pastor Joe, don't call me Pastor Joe. You know, I don't want to say that, but as you get to know me, it's call me Joe. And I don't just say that to be casual. I say that those of you who want to know the depth, the reason, the foundation is because of this passage. So I want you to respect Lauren as a pastor or as a teacher, Jared as leaders and these things. But I do not want you to feel like you must give us titles so that we can be respected and honored in a certain way because our Jesus actually forbade us to talk to people like that and have them talk to us like that. 
So if you want to be in the in crowd, you want to be in the inner circle of MPI, call us by our first names and introduce us by our first name. Hello, this is Joe, our pastor. This is Joe, or this is Lauren, one of our teachers. This is so-and-so. Do it just like the way Paul did. My name's Paul, and I'm an apostle. That's what I do because we don't want to be puffed up. I don't want to miss what God has for me because I, I, I start hungering for your honor and these titles. And without fail, without fail, every person that I've ever met in ministry that loves these titles has a problem with pride. Every person that I know that introduces themselves to me as bishop so-and-so and all of these other titles, I have eventually, uh, a time, in time, I have problems with them in the relationship. The most closest people I've had in my life as a minister are those who say, I am a pastor, I do these things, that's what I do, but I am Joe, I am Mike, I am whatever, call me by my name. And that's why I always tell you, if you could call him Jesus, you can call me Joe. Amen? Amen. So think about that for a little bit. Are you guys ready for the eight woes? Somebody go, whoa. (laughs) All right, here we go. There are seven woes similar in Isaiah 5. If you want to take a look at how Jesus is imitating the prophets, I always love to see how Jesus fulfills and and brings to fullness things in the past. But here we go. We're going to go one at a time and give you a brief explanation. Start in verse 13. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you pretenders, you actors, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. So you see the first problem he has with them is that you're not even going to heaven, and now you're stopping people from going to heaven. And I can give you an example about this in the modern church. I'm always going to try to put it to our modern example. See, I notice that as pastors start sinning and compromising, they start letting their church compromise. So let's take, for example, a pastor wants to have an affair, be forgiven, but keep pastoring. What is he going to allow the worship leader to do now? Have an affair, keep worship leading, right? If the pastor doesn't want to have an accountable life, then the people around him or her will not have an accountable life either. But here's the thing. That kind of a ministry, that kind of church, which I have been around, and by the way, they don't have horns, and they don't look like what the devil looked like on Halloween, you know, all scary with the pitchfork. These are great preachers, great entertainers, great authors, and people love going to their churches. But it's almost like they made a deal. The pastor said, don't get in my business, I won't get in your business. Don't talk about my stuff. I won't talk about your stuff. And that's exactly what these Pharisees were doing. They were saying, well, you know what? We're all just sinners. You do that. I do this. It's okay. Let's not talk about it. But what they were doing was really prohibiting people from getting in. You see, the kind of pastor that lives in an affair and thinks it's not a big deal is actually not going to be a good teacher for you. You see, I'm supposed to teach you first by my lifestyle. I'm supposed to teach you first how to live for God, repent of your sins, live a changed life, and that is to open the door to you to heaven. You are literally to see me opening the door. My wife's 19th spiritual birthday is today. Can we give that up for Jesus? 19 years my wife has been saved. And this, uh, what is today, the 4th? The third, then the the fifth of this month, I turned 24 years old in the Lord. Let's give it up for Jesus. He's been good to us. So what is 24 years of Christianity supposed to do for you? Open wide a door for you to come into the kingdom of God. 
I'm supposed to demonstrate through my life the kingdom of God coming in. Honey, we just clapped for you. Can we clap again? 19 years serving Jesus. All right. Let's go to verse 14 now. Look in your Bible. NIV, verse 14. First one there, read it out loud, gets $1,000. NIV, verse 14, read it out loud and get $1,000 today in church. That woke some of you up. You ain't in the NIV, boy. Stop your lying. You're trying to get, you're trying to get your 1000 It's not there, is it? Now, you see, most churches are going to skip over this, but every time we got to deal with it. Why are certain verses there and other verses not there? Different manuscripts handed down over time some were complete, some were incomplete. We as Christians have to do our homework and invest why some manuscripts are missing verses. This does not mean that our Bible has been changed, that the original has been lost. It's just what is the original? Is the original with verse 14 or without verse 14? Now, does verse 14, let's say it wasn't in the original, we would have to ask ourselves, how did it get there? And why is it there? So when we read verse 14, does it all of a sudden slip in something like, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, because you don't believe in aliens making the pyramids, and you don't believe that I'm actually an alien and that we're all here as aliens? No, see, there's nothing there that's conspiratorial. Does everybody get that, first of all? What we see in this passage is simply a record that was either lost in a certain manuscript or one that was added in from another talk that he had. Because remember, Jesus would talk often and repeat himself and not always say it the same exact way. Just like I will have a first service and a second service, but I will not repeat myself verbatim, but I will not contradict myself. Does everybody get that? There's a difference between repeating something differently and contradicting myself. So it's only, it's only one of two explanations here in verse 14. It's either an original that belongs there, and some manuscripts skipped over it. Either the scribe was tired and skipped over it, and it was supposed to be there because it's original to this talk. Or two, it's not original to this talk, but a scribe thought it belonged here from another talk in Luke or another part of the scriptures. It's up to you as you study to how you answer that historical question. For me... I take what is called the majority text approach. That means when we go to the museums and we count the book of Matthews, how many Greek manuscripts do we have of Matthew? Let's say we have a 1,000. What do the majority have? Everybody say majority. The majority text is what the King James and the older translations are based on. Those are the ones I receive. I believe it's a bigger text because the majority have it, and it's better to believe that certain scribes accidentally left out a verse here or there in a minority of the manuscripts. So if you said, Joe, how do you know that it's there? Because the majority said that it's there. I go on the majority. Do you get my argument? Let's say you don't think it's there, and you're going to let the NIV skip you right over the verse 15. You can still go to heaven, know Jesus is Lord, and believe that the Bible is perfect. You can believe the Bible is perfect. You're just simply saying the Bible did not intend to have that because the minority might be more accurate to you. 
You have not contradicted yourself. The only thing that we now have is one has a perfect Bible with this many verses and a perfect Bible with this one many. We both can't be right, but one of us is right, and someone has the perfect Bible. That's what I believe as a Christian. Amen? Amen. Verse 14, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Why are they going to be judged harsher now? Because they keep receiving money, but they're not doing anything to help people. They keep making long prayers for everybody to hear, but they're doing nothing to change the world they live in. How many know we got churches on every corner, but they're not changing those corners? How many know there's Christians all up on your job, but they're not changing the job? How many know we got Christians all up in America, but they're not changing the world? We need to start voting again with our Christian ethics. We need to start standing up for righteousness in our companies. We need to start changing the communities, not by force, but by our lifestyles. And I don't mean to say that having a big church is bad, but oftentimes you look at big churches, the majority of people are still women. And I don't want to be stereotypical, but a lot of women like church because it's emotional for them. And in that emotional state, they begin to give their money because they feel that that pastor has become their surrogate father, their surrogate husband. They have now found something in that leader that they didn't have in their emotional life. And they come here and they get emotional and they give their money. And the Bible says that person becomes a pimp to them. Just using the widow, using the woman's good nature, the helping nature she has to take advantage of her. And so today in this church, we honor men and women the same. And this is what we can say to you. We are not here to use or abuse your finances, but we are to be trusted with it and to live in integrity with that. And if you ever want to know what we're doing with your finances, talk to Pastor Lawrence. He'll give you a printout, and you'll see that we're 20% today ahead of where we were last year. And if we stopped receiving money right now, we would have more money at November than we did all 12 months last year. We made more in 10 months. Come on, somebody. So God is blessing, amen? God is blessing. But we're not doing that by selling you another conference, by selling you another thing, by trying to take advantage of emotional widow-type things. We're preaching the word, and if you want to give, let's go and put it to work. Let's go to the next one. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woo! Okay, there's a couple things we need to get here. Number one, there's children of the devil. There's children of hell. So not everybody's a child of God. So this idea that we're all children of God is not true. You're only a child of God when you're born of God. Number one. Number two, there's people who are more children of the devil than there are not children of the devil. So, so you can become a child of the devil and then increase in your level of being a child of the devil. Just like you can increase in being a child of God. Rewards and punishment are all dealt out according to what you do in this earth. So as a child of God, you can begin having a reward, a treasure in heaven that is different than your neighbor right now based on what you do based on your obedience. And the same thing goes with going to hell. You can go to hell and suffer more than someone else going to hell because of what you did against the things of God. 
And so all of us here need to understand we should not be children of the devil, number one. Children of God is what we should be. And then number two, we need to make sure what we're winning people over to is real Christianity, not Nicianity, not Americananity. We're winning them over to Christianity, Christianity. Because otherwise, listen, listen, you can be in a church and be worse off than if you were a sinner. Because if you're in a church and you start to distort the things of God and you start to purposely use people to get what you want out of religion, you're worse now than just the average pagan because the average pagan's going to hell because they have the wrong God. You not only have the wrong God in the way you're worshiping him, the way you're, you're treating him, but now you're hurting others on your way to hell. You're using religion as a tactic. In other words, Joseph Smith today from the Mormon church is in a different kind of hell than the people of the Roman pagan culture. Don't use religion to get your way in life. Don't try to convert people over to your way to make yourself feel better. And I feel that's true with a lot of like uh, misguided, immature pastors is they use their people to feed their ego. And then by doing that, they hurt them. And if those people fall into the trap of their cult of personality, they can be damned as well. Christianity is serious, my friends. Jesus is talking about a real place called hell. Don't go there and don't follow people going there. Amen? Let's go to verse 16. Are you still with me? This is going to be a long one. Woe to you blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, it's bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is, be- which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything in it. And anyone who swears swears by the temple, swears by it, and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven, swears by God's throne, and by the one who sits on it. Everybody say, stop swearing. The whole entire point of that is that they would swear. Now, how many know if you have a friend that says, I swear on my baby, I swear on this, how many know that's the first indication you don't believe that person? The, the, The moment they start swearing like that, you're like, man, I don't believe whatever you're saying next. I don't even care if you're pointing towards the lake and saying that's east. If you just started off that statement with, I swear on my baby, I swear on my my daddy's grave, I swear on this, I don't believe nothing coming out of your mouth now. Last person I want to trust. Well, that's what they were doing. But the problem with that is, is, is Jesus points out a contradiction. You swear on the gold, but you don't swear on the temple because they would be like, that's wrong. You, you swear to heaven, but you won't swear to God, you know. So they knew what was right and wrong in a general sense. Like, you weren't supposed to swear on the temple. You weren't supposed to swear on God, but they, were, they would swear on heaven. They would, they would swear on the things in the temple. And what he basically says is, what is the temple? What is that thing? That thing in the temple means nothing. It's the temple that makes that thing something. So why are you swearing on that little thing and you're trying to get around the temple? The temple is still what you're really swearing on. And when you're saying you swear to heaven, but you're not swearing on God, what makes heaven heaven is God. So he's pointing out the silliness of what they're doing. But here's, here's what we get. Here's what we get from this. I can watch Game of Thrones. Why? Because it's not pornography. See, it gets quiet when I say that. See, instead of the swearing thing being where we try to walk the line, we try to walk the line in what's a sin and what's not a sin. 
Now, I'm thankful for apps like VidAngel that can edit out movies and shows like, uh, you know, Game of Thrones. But see, a lot of you want to make excuses for things you know are blatantly sin. See, they knew it was a blatant sin to swear on God, to swear on the temple, but they would try to find these ways around it. We know nudity is wrong, but we'll go to a movie theater and see it in a rated R movie. You see, and then we'll go, oh, see, but I didn't look at pornography. I didn't look, I was just watching the Game of Thrones. I had to find out who, what, you know, who killed who, Pastor. I got to find out. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? See? You see how we do that? We try to get around things all the time. You looking at a naked man or woman is never good. Now, if you want to talk about art and in that context, that's a different kind of, of situation or as a doctor or so and so forth. But you know in Game of Thrones, that ain't art, and that's not biology class. Are you listening? They might be doing biological things, but it's not right because I do my research. I wanted to watch it just like y'all wanted to watch it, but then I realized what was going on, incest, nudity, five sex scenes in the first episode, all of that. So then I said, come on, VidAngel, get this out and edit it, you know? And then sometimes people are like, man, now it's edited. You're still supporting it. Uh, isn't that just as bad as watching it unedited? For me, I can't go that deep with it. If you just want to throw the whole thing to hell in a handbasket, that's fine. But for me, as long as I don't see the gross, the, uh, the perverted nature of it, I'm guarding my eyes and heart. I leave that rest to you. Let's go to verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, and you what? Hypocrites, you see it comes up every time, doesn't it? You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now look at this part here. It says, you have practiced the latter. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the what? The former. You blind guys, you strain at a gnat but swallow a camel. So they were tithing even off their salt on the table. They were tithing off the dill they would grow in their garden and then, you know, chop it up and say, okay, here's 10%. I'm going to give it now to the Lord. But then they would be so wicked, unjust, unmerciful, unfaithful to God in their life. And now look, this is that point I was trying to make before. He says, you did what was right when you were tithing off your spices. That's awesome. You see, the pagans don't even get a star next to their name. Like I'm saying, all of that is wicked. He's going, y'all got a lot in here that's true. You do have something right even when you're doing your tithing off your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin. How many love cumin? Hello. All of these things right here. But he said this, but you neglected the other things. And what this teaches us, everybody get this, is God is not going to judge you on a scale or what do they call that in, uh, in school? By the lowest score or the highest score they're going to get judged by? A curve, thank you. He's not judging you on a curve. God will still call us out for our sin, no matter how good we've been over here. I mean, let's just think about it. Adam and Eve are like perfect, literally perfect, and they do one thing. And God's not like, hey, listen, I know you've done all of these other things perfect. You named the animals. You've hung out. You've done all of this. Like, you're good. So you've done 10 perfect things, one bad thing. Okay, now you're at nine again. You know, No, no, no. He goes, your one imperfect thing brings you to zero. And then now here's the point. You can't even go to one yet until you fix how you went to zero. So your heart has to be changed. And that's why Jesus ends up sending himself and coming to die on the cross because we can't even make up the wrongs that we have done, let alone transform the heart that did them. 
And so what he's pointing out to them is, you are a blind guide. You are straining at a little old gnat, but you're swallowing this huge camel because you don't understand how the kingdom works. If they understood that Jesus had forgiven them of much, then they would be forgiving much. In other words, they would be generous with their giving of love like they were trying to be generous with their giving of spice back to God. And this is literally what the Bible says in the book of James. How can you say you love God when you hate your brother? You don't even see God, but your brother you do see. So how can we say, look at me, God, I'm giving all this tithe, I'm giving all this offering, I'm such a generous person, when you're not even helping, giving mercy, forgiveness, justice to the people you can see? He says it doesn't work that way. You have to come back to a place of repentance and being born again. Let's look at the next one. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. Somebody say, clean me, Jesus. Thank you. How many understand that illustration? It's simple. We can be religious on the outside, but wicked on the inside. One time a person was interviewing a nun at a nunnery, like at a monastery, and they were asking this nun about their daily life of contemplation and all that they do to rid themselves of sin. And this woman was so impressed with the nun's schedule and how early they get up to pray and how often they fast and how much they volunteer to go to, to the orphanage and do all of these wonderful things. And then she said to the nun, the one interviewing her, she said, you must be free. You must be free from the temptation of sin. And she said, no. The whole time we've been sitting here, I've been looking up at the stained glass window and saw that nun so-and-so forgot to clean it, and I'm so angry with her right now, and I have to go deal with her. You see, this nun was being honest that just because she did all of these things on the outside, it didn't change her on the inside. That didn't change her on the inside. I don't care how much we like the Shaolin monks and how cool they are when they walk on rice paper and do all of those things. They're just as dirty and filthy on the inside as a sinner you see on the streets. The only one that can cleanse us, the only one that can free us from that temptation like that nun was having to want to go yell at that other nun is Jesus. And we all come the same. We don't come to Jesus with a wheelbarrow of good works going, now, Jesus, look at all these good works I did. Would you please cleanse me as much as I gave you in good works? Like I brought you a pound of good works. Now cleanse me a, a pound worth of, of, of the blood here. No, we're not making trades with Jesus that way. The Pharisees looked at it like that, very economic and I'm afraid to say many in our culture look at it the same way. Well, I feed the poor. Well, I do this. I give to the church. Every now and then I lose my temper with my neighbor, but that don't matter. No, it does matter to God. God is continually looking at the heart more than he's looking at what we're doing out here. Now, of course are we to do those things on the outside. Absolutely. But they first, first, somebody say first. First must come from the inside. So if I'm at the orphanage, 
I'm not at the orphanage to earn more points for when I sin to get forgiveness. I'm there because of simple obedience and love. I'm not making exchanges. When I'm out preaching the gospel or doing Christian charity or you're doing those kinds of things, don't have it in your mind. You're making an exchange. The more you do, the more you get, the more you do. No, no, you're there because you've been cleansed. You've been changed. You've been loved. You've been forgiven. And now you want others to have it. Amen? Amen. Verse 27, hang in, they're almost done. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Very similar to the other one. Let's go to verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. Everybody go, ooh. Now, he literally looked at him and said, you've killed a bunch of other prophets. Finish what you start and kill me. I'm ready. I'm ready to die. What we know about the Jewish people at this time is that they were wicked towards the righteous. And they started persecuting the righteous. And they, with the Romans, got Jesus crucified. And they, with the Romans, began to kill the Christians. Do we forgive them of this? Yes. Sadly, everybody look up at me, please. If you want to know where anti-Semitism came from in the KKK, other supremacist groups, and yet they call themselves Christians, and you're looking at them going, you guys have got to be the most dumbest people I've ever met. You hate Jews, and you call yourself a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. This is how they do it. If you want to know their thinking, which is absolutely wrong, but this is what happened in Germany. The German people were even considering themselves Christians. If you remember during one of the wars, uh, one of the battles, the German soldiers celebrated Christmas. The American soldiers did as well. They met in the middle. They had some little dinner together. You remember that's based on a historical battle. They considered themselves Christians, but they're Jewish people, rats and dogs, worthy of death in gas chambers. Why? Because they thought righteously they were now to kill those who killed Jesus. In their mind... When Jesus said this to them, you are a snake, you are a viper, you are condemned to hell, you murder prophets, and then eventually they murder Jesus, and as uh, um, uh, Pilate is talking to them, well then, you know, why should I do this thing? He's an innocent man, and they shouted out, let his blood be on us and our children. Do you remember that in the story? The anti-Semites, the Nazis say they deserve it. Why is this unbiblical? Number one, God still loves the world despite what the world does. On the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But what in this context tells us that's wrong? At the end, Jesus says, we'll get to it in just a moment, how much he still loves them. Even though he knew they were murderous, representing the wickedness of man wanting to rid the world of what was good, he was merciful to them, loving to them. Can I hear an amen? Amen. 
So the Bible says, go ahead, start what you finish. Verse 33, you snakes, he keeps going. You broad of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. That's what happened with Paul getting pursued from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias son of Berechai, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Now where does their punishment come? Where does it come? The destruction of Jerusalem. We don't need to keep giving them the punishment. First of all, let me just say it like this. The Jewish people are God's people. He punishes them. You can correct my children, but you can't punish my children, right? Are you listening to me? You pull down the pants of my child and start spanking them, we got a problem. You can, you can tell me that they did something wrong. You can, you can tell them stop talking in church or something. But you take off your belt, pull down their pants, and you want to start whooping them? We got a problem. Same thing with Jesus. Jesus says, don't you mess with the Jewish people. Those are my people. Those are my children. I'm going to discipline them. The punishment will come. What was the punishment? We're getting to it in chapter 24. What was the punishment for them rejecting their Messiah? They get their temple destroyed. That's it. They don't need to be put in gas chambers. They don't need to be treated as non-humans. As a matter of fact, Paul, as he's being chased by them, says, I still love them. I wish I was even a curse so that they might be saved. Paul never stopped loving them. We should never stop loving them. And even to this day, when you meet a Jew, give them two things. Number one, the greeting in their language, shalom aleichem. Everybody say shalom aleichem. Greet them in peace and then apologize for what Christianity has done to them or those in the name of Christianity and say, we're not with the Crusades, we're not with the Inquisitions, we're not with the Nazis. The evangelical Christian has been your best friend and will continue to be a supporter of Israel, Jerusalem, and your prosperity. Doesn't mean we agree with everything they do in their political system, but them being returned to their land is a promise of God because that punishment of them being driven from their land started in 70 AD, and then being restored happened in the 1940s, and both of those are God's doing. The spanking in 70 AD was his doing, and then him bringing them back after the worst atrocity that they had ever faced. The Holocaust was God's grace and mercy to them. And as we will now see, as Jesus laments over them, they will be saved, a great number of them in the end times. And even right now, those who are reaching Jewish people, like Dr. Michael Brown, you can listen to some of his podcasts. He says that right now there are probably more Jewish Christians than at any time on the earth. The end is coming up close, my friends. This is one of our signs that the Jewish people are coming to their Messiah. How many want in on a good note? Amen. Amen. Help us, Jesus. Verse 37, all the woes are done. Listen to Jesus now. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Rachel, would you come, please? You see, it wasn't Jesus' fault, was it? They had decided they didn't want it. Listen to me, my friends. If anyone goes to hell, it is not God's fault. The will is what you will to decide, will you obey or not? It's the will God has given you that you will to decide, will you obey or not? He says to him very clearly, 
I wanted to bring you in. And women, this is where you got to see the image of God in Jesus. Because remember, Jesus makes us male and female. And together we are one and we reflect the image of God. Here is God in the flesh speaking to us. He is not a transgender person here, but he is speaking to us in the feminine to show us feminine attributes come from him. He says, I wished as a mother hen to have gathered you under my wings. Who remembers a psalm with the wings of God being spoke about? Psalm what? Psalm 91. Under the shadow of the Almighty. I will find my refuge under his wings. He is saying to them, I have spread out my wings for you, but you're not willing. Look at verse 38. Your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At the end times, the Bible says 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes will get saved for a total of 144,000. The Jehovah Witnesses twist this to think these are the elite Christians. That has nothing to do with Christians. It is very clear. 12,000 out of each of the 12 tribes will be saved during the time of the Antichrist. And God will send them out across the earth. And they will be his end time witnesses. I'll be watching that from heaven. Because before that is the rapture and then the great tribulation. But I tell you, that this is the evidence that our God can rebuke those he loves and still want the best for them. This is why not only is our God not anti-Semite, he's not anti-Muslim. He's not anti-Hindu. He's not anti-LGBTQLI, you know. He's not anti-anybody. God is wanting all of us to come to Jesus Jesus is literally standing in our culture asking us to come. He's using people like Kanye West. This man has gotten more attention to Jesus than all the Christian artists on K-Love put together. He literally has Jimmy Kimmel announcing Jesus is king on his his talk show because he named his album Jesus is King. There's no doubt about what he believes. And I'm praying for him because I want to see him make it. But we need to make Jesus' name great again. We need to show the world, yeah, we may not agree with you. We may not uh, like what you're doing. We may think some of you guys are snakes. We may think you're hypocrites. We may think you're whitewashed tombs. All of that may be true about what you're doing. But we still love you. And we want you to stop because all of us used to be there at one time or another. Amen? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How many of you today want to do that and bless the name of the Lord? Would you stand up and give him praise today? Come on. Hallelujah. We bless you today. Band and altar worker, would you come, please? We bless you today. Come on, somebody say, I bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. I bless you, Jesus, coming in the name of the Father. How many receive Jesus today as your Messiah? Now, if you're here today and any of those rebukes spoke to your heart, would you repent of those things right now? Jesus, forgive me. Come on, just ask him to forgive you right now. If you've been religious on the outside but wicked on the inside, ask Jesus to change you. If you've been a hypocrite, a pretender, if you've been someone that's 
that has actually tried to hide your sin, would you just confess it right now? And if you've come here today and you haven't known Jesus personally, and you don't know much about religion to to even be a hypocrite, you're just irreligious, but today you want Jesus, just ask Jesus into your heart. Right now, Lord, we ask you to forgive us, change us, help us to know and love you. In just a few moments, we'll dismiss, and all those who want prayer can come on up. No one here is going to judge you. Remember that? No one here is going to put you down for that. As a matter of fact, if you come up for this time of prayer at the end, that's what we get excited about because we used to be where you were at. There was a time in my junior high days where I was a hypocrite. I was trying to go to church, and then I would hang out with my friends, and I wasn't admitting it, and I was living a double life. I was a pretender. But God brought me back. God will bring pretenders back. He'll make you real today. You can take off the mask. A few moments right now. Search your heart. Pray, and we'll dismiss after we search this. Search our hearts in these moments. God, teach us. Teach us, teach us, Lord. I don't want to be a hypocrite, God. I, I don't want to preach this to others and then not live it tonight when I go home. Lord, make me the way you want me to be. We love you, Lord, and we want to give our lives to you. Father, I pray as we dismiss, as we go about our ways today, that all of us will be honest with who we are and will live for you and honor you. And if we were to make mistakes and people watch us or see it, that we would not only repent to you secretly, but we would publicly repent to those who watched us sin. So, Lord, I pray for parents. When parents sin, they repent to their kids. Bosses and employees, when you sin on your job, we repent to those who are around. As much as it applies to us, we repent and live a life to this world that shows.